0: Open your Bibles to Mark chapter 11. We've been studying faith. We've gone back and looked and we've discovered that the reason it's important to not just understand faith, but to walk in faith, is that's how you are saved. Not only is that how you are saved, it's the only way you can please God is by faith. Because in order to do what pleases God, which is to come to Him, you must believe that He is and that He is a rewarder of those that diligently seek Him. We've seen that we're commanded to walk by faith and not by sight. We've seen that the scripture says that the righteous, that's those who have been made righteous by faith in Christ, we must live, walk, live by faith, not just be saved by faith. And that everything that God has for you is received from him by faith. Many times what many Christians are doing is they're calling upon God for things, but they're not, they're not in faith. So they get frustrated or angry at God as if God's holding something back from them. So we just assume that if we haven't received something, it's God's fault. And what we've seen by studying the scriptures is that anything that's been promised to you by God, He's already delivered. That faith is what allows us to receive what God's already provided for us. That God made up His mind what He was going to do for you and provide for you before the foundation of the world and he paid for the provision of that when Christ went to the cross and was raised from the dead. So in God's mind, it's a done deal. God talks in the past tense. He said to Joshua, when he's facing the walls of Jericho, see, I have already given the city to you. And Joshua looks up and the walls are still there. So God must look with a different type of sight than Joshua was using with these eyes. Well, it's the eyes of faith. And, and, and God talks in the past tense. And what we've discovered is that faith is now. Faith believes that what God has provided for me, I have received now. So we've seen that faith is not some other things. It's not hope. The Bible says in Hebrews 11.1, 1, in the definition of faith, faith is that gives substance to, to the things we hope for. So we've seen that faith and hope are not the same thing. You need hope because hope's the thermostat. Hope sets what you want, what your expectation is reaching out for, but that's not faith. So hope talks this way. Hope says, I hope I'm going to hope it. Someday I'm going to receive that. That's good. That's hope. Faith says, I have it now, even though my senses don't tell me that. And I have it now because God's promised it and I've received it by faith now. We've discovered that faith is not the same thing as mental assent or assenting with your mind. You can believe one thing in your mind and something else in your heart. And the Bible talks about what we believe in our heart, not what we believe in our head. So you can read scriptures and study scriptures suppose it's about healing and you can go through and study the scriptures and you can say yes I see where the Bible says it's God's will to heal me but that doesn't mean you're in faith for that yet. What was I saying? Oh, mental ascent. Faith is not... So it's important that you understand what the word of God says but that's not enough. And when it drops those 18 inches into your heart you know it. And we'll talk a little bit more about that next week. So we've talked about some things that faith is not, and we've talked about basically what faith is. Now what we began to talk about last week is how you release it. It's not enough to be in faith. Then you have to release or exercise that faith. And if you don't know that these steps are involved, you can, you can, you can be somewhere you're not, think you're somewhere you're not, or you can be, you can be in faith and will not won't know why it's not working. Now, these are not mechanical things. These are not 14 steps in a process. But these are elements of something that are of an important part of faith. Before a pilot will, will f- fly his plane, he goes through a checklist. He may have 10,000 hours logged in that plane, but he doesn't rely on his memory. He pulls out the list and goes down the checklist. Have this thing? Have we checked this thing? Have we got this thing? Is, is, do we have gas in the tank? Do we have batteries in the, in, in the microphone? Those kind of checklists. And so, so, um, so, so, it's a, so the, those elements are important to be able to identify I've covered them all. Understand this. When we're, going, when we're taking faith apart like this, these are not things you earn. Okay, now I've done A, B, and C. Therefore, God owes something to me. That's the mentality of the world. God's already given you from His side. He's done everything He can do for whatever it is you need. If it's healing for your body... If it's, if it's provision for you, if it's to be saved, if to be filled with the Holy Spirit, whatever God's word says He has promised you, He has already provided it. So we can argue with God, plead with God, beg with God, but His answer is, what else can I do? I've put it on the table. You have to pick it up and eat it. It's up to you to do it. So we're learning how to do that. Picking up the food does not earn you the food because the food's already been provided if it's on the table. And the same way, following these steps, you know, the things we're going to talk about does not earn you something from God, but what it does do is it makes sure you're releasing or exercising your faith. And we began to look at examples of that last week. We saw in Matthew chapter chapter 14, the end of the verse... We saw that Jesus has come come from Syria and they saw that he was around and they they gathered all the sick people around him because they said, if we just touch the hem of his garment, we will be whole. But the end of that verse says, and as many as touched it were healed. So we got the picture that there were people that when they found out that Jesus was coming into their community, got all excited. Their level of faith came up. Oh, I have a, I have faith. Jesus can heal me. If I just touch the hem of his garment, I'll be healed. But it was only those that actually went and touched it that were healed. So there were people in that crowd that believed that if they touched his garment, they'd be well, and they weren't well. Why? because they did not act on what they believed. So we're learning that it's not just enough to be in faith. In fact, I suggest that some of you tonight are in faith and you don't know you're in faith. But the reason you're not receiving what you're believing God for is you haven't released it yet. So we're going to look tonight at specifically how to do that and there are two basic ways and they're related to each other so did you find mark 11 all right well verse 22 says have faith in god of course this is jesus teaching his disciples how to ask god for something for the and and trust god for something because jesus is using uh, an example that he has just done for them when he cursed the fig tree and overnight it withers from its roots And as they're passing by in the morning, Peter stops and says, Master, look, the tree that that you cursed last night, it's withered from its roots. And Jesus stops to use this as an example to teach his disciples about faith. Now, let me ask you a question. Do you think that this story... Now, first of all, what we see from this is Jesus isn't keeping these secrets to himself. Jesus isn't saying, I know how to walk in faith and you don't. He's not saying, look, I'm the son of God. So, therefore, that's I do these things because I'm the Son of God. So, don't you dare think that you could do such things because, after all, you're not the Son of God, and I am. Well, you read the Gospels. You've, that's kind of what I was taught in, in, in Sunday school when I was growing up. But then these were people that didn't really understand the Bible. And I didn't read the Bible. I just believed what they taught me. But as I began to read the Bible for myself and especially the Gospels, I saw that Jesus had a very different attitude. The only time he ever got upset at people was, first of all, with the religious leaders because they were being religious about things instead of caring about people. The second thing he got upset about was his own staff, and he got upset at them for not believing enough. He never got upset at them for going beyond their boundaries. He didn't set boundaries for them. He didn't say, look, you're a disciple. on the Lord because I'm the Lord and your disciple, you can't walk on water. I can do that. No, you can use your faith to go through storms, but only I can walk on water. No, what happened when Peter said, Lord, can I do this? He said, come. And then when Peter failed, what did Jesus do? He got upset at Peter and says, why did you quit? Why did you doubt? You were doing it. So he was challenging them all the time to expand and extend their faith. Now let me ask you a question. If Jesus wasn't holding that back for himself, but he shared it with the disciples, and not just the 12, he shared it with the 70, because there were other levels of disciples. Why are these stories in there? Is it just for us to be able to look back and look historically and say, well, that was nice that they could do those things? Because many Bible teachers teach that today, that those stories are in there so we could see what Jesus did when he walked on the earth, but that he doesn't do those things today. We're not supposed to do those things today. I can't find that in my Bible. I can't find where it says, "You're not supposed to do this in the next generation." because if that's true, then the, then the go- ye into all the world and make disciples was only for them also. So we're just reading an historical account of what Jesus offered to his disciples, but we don't get to, we're, not, we're not to do those things. If that's true, then we're not responsible to go into all the world and preach the gospel. We're not responsible to evangelize. All we're supposed to do is read the Bible and look back and say, "Whoa, it must have been wonderful in those days. And that's really the attitude of some people today. But I can't find when I read my Bible where Jesus says we're not supposed to do those things. In fact, I read the opposite. Where he said, because I go to the Father, I'm going to ask the Father. He's going to send the Holy Spirit, the same Spirit by which I did these things. You're now going to do them. Well, let me ask you something. When you were born again, did you receive the Holy Spirit? Have you been filled with the Spirit? And it's the same Spirit because there's only one. So he's given us the power to do what he did. Then I I can't imagine he give us the power to do what he did and not authorize us to do what he did. So this story is not just in there so that we can look and see what Jesus was able to do. This story is not just in there so we can look and see what he taught his disciples to do because we're his disciples also. The story is in the Gospels because Jesus wants to teach us how to operate by faith. So the first principle is have faith in God. Then he says, Whosoever shall say unto this mountain, Be thou taken... So is he using the mountain as a physical example, just as he had used the fig tree. Whosoever shall say unto this mountain, Be thou taken up and cast in the sea, and shall not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says shall come to pass, he shall have whatsoever he saith. Now, let's take that apart a little bit, because in there is the crucial key to what we're going to talk about tonight. He starts, we've talked about this before, he starts out by saying whosoever. He doesn't say disciples, does he? He doesn't say, you know, Peter and James and John and Thaddeus and Bartholomew. He says whosoever. And we talked about that a few weeks ago. So that's up to me whether I'm one of those whosoevers. It's not up to God. He's offered it to you. Whenever he says whosoever, he's offering to you the opportunity to participate in what he's doing. And so he says, Whosoever shall, whosoever shall whosoever shall you, it's okay to talk in church. Whosoever shall say unto this mountain. Be thou pick, taken up and cast into the sea, and shall not doubt in his heart. Not his head. His heart. And shall not doubt in his heart. But, so there's something you're not supposed to do, which is to allow doubt into your heart. And that's something you're to keep out. That's one of the, one of the parts of the, of, the, of the armor of God that's listed in Ephesians chapter 6, is the shield of What? Faith. And what the shield of faith does is keeps out fiery darts. Those fiery darts are aimed at your heart, and they're they're darts of doubt. Let them know. They're darts of unbelief. And you know, the first dart that was ever shot was in Genesis chapter 3. Has God said? goes back to something we talked about Sunday morning. The first thing Satan challenged in the Garden of Eden was the Word of God, to take the Word of God out of her heart. And so here he comes with a fiery dart to get you to question God's Word. Why? Because he's got to get doubt in your heart because if you let the doubt, that dart of doubt in your heart, it's a fiery, flaming dart. It will begin to catch, spread within your heart. Doubt will begin to spread within your heart and drive out faith in God's Word. So we're not to allow doubt in our heart, but what, then we're to do so. But believes that what he hopes for would come to pass. Is that what it says? Look at your Bible. That's not what it says. What it says is very important. That believes that what he says shall come to pass. He shall have whatsoever he believes. Look at your Bible. That's not what it says. It doesn't say he'll have whatever he believes. It doesn't say he'll have whatever he's in faith for. It says you'll have whatever you said. This is an area where the church has fallen down. There was a period of time back in the 80s and in the early 90s when there was a lot of teaching in the church about confession. And then people kind of went overboard with it and people got afraid to say the wrong things. And that's a form of bondage. But we threw the baby out with the bathwater. The Bible says a whole lot about what we talk about. In fact, Jesus said, we'll be judged by every word we speak. The words we speak are so important. And one of the ways, one of the crucial ways you release your faith is with your words. Turn with me to to, um, Romans chapter 10. Paul starts this chapter out by talking about his desire and his prayer is that Israel would be saved because that's his heritage. In verse 2, he says, I bear witness that they have a zeal for God, a desire, a passion for God, but it's not according to knowledge. In other words, they don't have an understanding of what to do with it. For they being ignorant of God's righteousness or how you're made righteous in God's sight, Seeking to establish their own righteousness, they've not submitted to the righteousness of God. Or what that means is they've not submitted to the method by which God imparts righteousness to us. Why? Because they're trying to earn it themselves by fulfilling the law. Verse 4 For Christ is the end or the fulfillment of the law for righteousness, look at this, to everyone who believes. For Moses writes about the righteousness which is of the law or comes by means of the law and says, the man who does these things shall live by them. Look at verse 6. But the righteousness which we receive by faith speaks this way. In other words, the attitude that we are to have by which we received our righteousness by faith talks this way. This is the way we speak in order to receive the gift of righteousness that is given to us by faith. You understand that the Bible teaches there's two ways you can be made righteous in God's eyes. The first, under the Old Testament, is under the law. And that requires you to obey every commandment of the law every minute of every day for every moment of your life. Well, you can't do that. And the purpose of that law was not so that anybody would do that. The purpose of the law was to prove to them because there's just something inherent in our flesh that I want to do it myself. And the purpose of the law was, all right, you want to do it yourself, hot shot? Here's what it requires. Go at it. And the purpose was to prove to them that they couldn't do it so that they would realize... I need someone to do it for me which was to prepare them to receive the true method of receiving righteousness which is a gift of comes by a gift of grace that's received by faith. So when Paul's talking about the righteousness of faith here, he's talking about the righteousness that's received by having putting our faith in what Christ did for us instead of what we do for ourselves. So that's what he's talking about here. And he's saying that we receive that gift of grace by faith, and we talks this way. This is the attitude with which faith talks. Do not say in your heart, who will ascend into heaven, that is to bring Christ down, or who will descend into the abyss. In other words, saying, Who will say, because to say will bring Christ down or raise him from the dead, is to say the work's not completed. Is to say, God, there's still something you have to. Pre- I want to be saved, so save me. Do your action that's going to be required to save me. This goes back to what we began starting about that God's already done everything He's going to do. It's finished. When Jesus hung on the cross, His last words were, "What? It is finished. The work's done from God's side." So Paul's saying here, don't say, God, you're still something you have to do. Save me. What we're going to see is God's already provided it. What you have to do is receive it. That's all that's left. Now that not only applies to your salvation, it applies to everything else God has provided for you. All right. So don't say, God, send him down from heaven. He already did that. Don't say, God, raise him from the dead. He's already done it. That's already done. So don't say, God, you do something. Here's what faith talks. Verse, 40, verse 8. But what does faith say? And this is what it says. The word is near... The what? The what? The word. The word is something you speak. The word is near you. The word of your salvation. The word by which you receive that salvation. It's near you. It's in your mouth. It's in your mouth. The word of your salvation tonight is in your mouth. It's not in heaven. And it's not down in hell. It's in literally in your mouth tonight. And in your heart. Let's go on and see what he says here. But what does it say? The Word is near you. It's not in heaven. It's not in hell. It's in your own mouth and in your own heart. That is the Word of faith which we preach. And this is verse 9 which we know so well. That if you will confess with your mouth that's speaking the Lord Jesus Christ or Jesus as Lord of your life and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead you will be saved. Why? Because your salvation was already paid for and delivered to you. All it waited was for you to open, to believe the words you heard, and then open your mouth and declare it was yours by declaring Him Lord. And the moment you believed in your heart, you already had to believe it in your heart. So you can confess with your mouth all you want, but if you don't believe in your heart, it doesn't do anything. This is how you receive. So Paul's saying, your salvation was bought, paid for, delivered and served to you 2,000 years ago before you were ever born. It was available to you the moment you could open your mouth. But God had to wait for you to come to the place where you believed in your heart and then you acted on what you believed in your heart by opening your mouth. It's not enough to believe in your heart. You have to act on what you believe in order for it to be activated. And that action here by which you were saved is you opened your mouth and you declared that Jesus was now your Lord. He's been Lord of the universe for eternity. He's been Lord over the church for 2,000 years. But He became your Lord when you opened your mouth and received Him by your confession. But that word to complete that faith to save you has been in your mouth from the time you were born. It was waiting for you to release it. And the moment you released it, the salvation that was bought and paid for was received by you. You didn't have to do anything else. Notice it says, you shall be saved. You just believe in your heart and declare with your mouth, release it with your mouth, you shall be saved. But see, this is how God operates. You go back to the book of Genesis, you'll find in Genesis 1 and 2, That every time God created something, what did he do? He said, he said, let there be. He spoke it into existence. And then he said, let us make man in our image, like us. And then he gave man, Adam, authority and dominion on the earth. And Adam Adam exercised that dominion. Because it says in chapter 2 that God brought all the creatures before him and God told him what the names of those creatures were. Is that what it says? That's not what it says, is it? Who named the creatures? Adam did. Because by naming them, he was exercising the authority in this earth that had been given to him. And God called them whatever name Adam gave to them. God created them, delegated to Adam the authority to name them because He delegated to Adam His authority over all this earth. And with that authority goes the authority to name. Now those of you who have had children have gone through that process where you have to select a what? A name for that that child. In our case, we had twins the last children we had were twins we had to select two names that got interesting because we didn't know then boy or girl boy and girl boy boy girl girl what they were coming and so we had two sets of two boys names and two girls names and as the and they were twins they were identical boys so as the first one was born they said what's the name and i said i didn't know how to decide which one was first i had two names picked but they didn't they didn't call up city hall and ask the mayor what do we name these children, did they? They asked me and their mother because those children had been entrusted by God to us. So we had the authority to give them their names. And so Adam called them something with his mouth. And God honored what he called them. Notice as Jesus walks on the earth, How seldom you hear him go to God and pray about a situation. When they brought blind people to him, he didn't stop and say, Father, please heal their eyes, did he? What did he do? Sometimes he told them to go do something, but sometimes he just spoke to the eyes. John chapter 11, the powerful story. When Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead, he comes over to the tomb. This man's been in the grave four days and as his sister said, he stinketh. Because they didn't embalm him. And he, he, he called, he said, Father, I'm talking out loud to you so that they know you're the one that does this. Yes. So he didn't say, Father, please raise this man from the dead. What did he do? He exercised the authority that he'd been given. Because what did they marvel at? They marveled that such authority had been given to a man. Yes. Why? Why? Because God backed up his words. Just as he backed up Adam's words, and Jesus said, whatsoever things you bind on earth will be considered in heaven as if they were already bound. And whatsoever things you loose on this earth will be considered in heaven as if they had already been loosed. In other words, if you declare something... God will back your word. He made it clear, Jesus said, I, my name I give you. He said, you no longer need to come to me, but you come to the Father in my name. And whatever you ask Him in my name, He'll do. Early on in the book of Acts, Peter and John tried it out. The man at the gate beautiful been lame his whole life. At this gate, with his leg all gnarled, they come over and he's begging for alms. Peter says to him, silver and gold, I don't have to give you. But what I do have, I give you. And what did he have? In the name of Jesus. Now he didn't say, Father, in the name of Jesus, would you please raise him up? He spoke to the lame man in Jesus' place. That's what in his name means. In other words, as if Jesus were standing here commanding it. That's what his name means. It's a power of attorney. And I can tell you that as a lawyer, and not only am I a lawyer, I have a power of attorney for one of my relatives. I can sign any check of hers. I I, I literally sign her name in her place. And that's what we've been given but we exercise it with our words. We exercise it with our words. So we see here that God provided your salvation before the foundation of the earth and then paid for it 2,000 years ago, but it was received by you when you took the word that was in your mouth and you released it. Turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 4. See, we get shy about this because we don't want to say things that are too bold. We don't want to sound too brassy. We don't want to be presumptuous and say things that God might not do and therefore embarrass him. We don't want to say things when the Word of God tells us to open our mouth. Now, you've got to believe in your heart. It doesn't say whatever you say will come to pass. It says whatever you believe in your heart and say with your mouth. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 13. Since then, now he's, talked about, he's been talking about the persecution that he's gone through and how he's gone through it, which is by faith. And so he have been talking about the attitude with which he's faced these things. Verse 13. Since we have the same spirit of faith. Now the word spirit sometimes, many times, refers to your inner man or your inner nature. But sometimes it's used in the word to refer to an attitude or a frame of mind. or An, yeah, an attitude or a frame of mind. And that's the use here. We having the same spirit or attitude which faith has. Just as we saw Paul say in Romans 10, this is how faith speaks. This is the attitude with which faith is exercised. He's saying here the same thing. Therefore, having the same spirit or attitude of faith, this is what we do. According it is written, I believed... And therefore I spoke. We also believe, and therefore, as a consequence of our believing, we open our mouth and speak what we believe. Now, I want to show you an example of this, several examples. Turn with me uh, quickly to Daniel chapter 6. You know, we could spend weeks on this, examples of this. I want to show you one in the Old Testament. And I was just kind of thumbing through some things when I came home today, just kind of resting and meditating, and I saw this, and it, it, it excited me. Daniel chapter 6, of course, is the story of Daniel in the lion's den. You know, the background of the story is, you know, these, these leaders, they were jealous of Dan, Daniel's favor with the king. And so they pulled out of the old records an old law that had been enacted, which, is, which, which excuse me, the king had, had, they'd gotten the king to enact, which is for 30 days that nobody can worship anybody else except the king. Well, they knew what Daniel was going to do, because three times a day, Daniel got down on his knees and prayed with the window open so people could hear. I mean, he wasn't trying to be public, but he wasn't hiding anything. It'd be nice if you had a reputation for your prayer life so that the leaders of the land knew when you prayed. And so, of course, you know, he prays because he's going to pray to his God. He's not going to worship the king. So they run quickly to the king and says, we found somebody that violated the law. He says, we've got to throw him in the lion's den. He said, it's Daniel. And the king regretted it, tried to wait it all night, up until nighttime to try to figure some way out. There was no way out. Now look what happens. So they bring Daniel to him to throw him in the lion's den. Let's look down at verse 14. And the king, when he heard these words, was greatly displeased in himself, with himself, and set in his heart on Daniel to deliver him, and he labored until the going down of the sun to deliver him. Then these men approached the king and said to the king, Know, O king, that it's the law of the Medes and the Persians, that no decree or statute which the king established may be changed. So the king gave command, and they brought Daniel, and cast him into the den of the lions. But the king spoke, saying to Daniel, Your God, whom you serve, he will deliver you the king is exercising faith in something he'd seen a faith in daniel and he'd done everything he knew to try to get out of it and he couldn't get out of it so now he turns and said all i know is you've got faith in your god so therefore i declare with my mouth that your god will deliver you and he did Now turn with me to Mark chapter 5. This is one of the greatest examples of this. And we may not get through all this, but I want to get it started. Mark, that's in the Gospels. Mark chapter 5. Starting in verse 21. Now when Jesus crossed over again by boat to the other side, a great multitude gathered to Him, and He was by the sea. And behold one of the rulers of the synagogue came to him, Jairus by name. And when he saw him, he fell at his feet and begged him earnestly, saying, My daughter lies at the point of death. Now look at what he says. He says, Come, lay your hands on her, that she may be healed, and she will live. That's what he believed. And when he got to Jesus... What did he do? He spoke to him what he believed. He didn't say, Jesus, I hope if you come, you can save her. Because that's not faith. He is saying, definitely, if you'll come and lay your hands on her, I'm declaring she will be made well and she will live. So he opens his mouth and declares with his mouth, what he believes. Because when you declare with your mouth, you're, repu- you're, you're, you're now on the line for it. As long as we hold it in ourselves and don't declare it, we're always holding, we're hedging. Well, if it doesn't come to pass, then at least no one will know that's what I was believing. Which means I don't really believe it. See, when you take that step, that outward action, so that others now know what you're believing, you're on the line in their eyes. They now know what you're believing. And I never saw it this way before. But when you make it public by some action or words, now others can see and they'll know if it doesn't happen. This is what you're thinking. So if I'm not sure, I'll hold back and wait till I'm Sure. And so when I make that decision, because faith is a decision, to give it, to become public with what I'm believing, by declaring it, and then we'll talk later on another way to do it. Then now I've stepped out, like when Peter stepped out of the boat. Now I'm on the line. My faith is on the line. And that's that's the only place where it can work. It can't work as long as it's in you. It can only work when you put it to the test or put it on the line. This this story is so rich with this. Verse 24. So Jesus went with him, and a great multitude followed him and thronged him. So they're going to Jairus' house, this huge crowd that's been with him. They're all just kind of moving off in this direction now. Now, a certain woman who had a flow of blood for 12 years and had suffered many things at many physicians, spent all that she had and was no better but rather go worse. In other words, she was in a hopeless situation. She was broken. She was hurting. When she heard about Jesus, she came behind him in the crowd and touched his garment. We'll talk about that later on. For she said, If I only may touch his clothes, I shall be made well. And immediately the fountain or flow of her blood was dried up, and she felt in her body that she was healed of the affliction. So the order was this. She believed ahead of time that if I can touch his garment, I'll be whole. Then now believing, she exercised her faith first of all by saying, if I just touch his garment, I shall be made whole. Then the third thing she had to do, she had to believe it, then she had to say it, now she had to act on what she said. And it wasn't easy. Because this woman was weakened undoubtedly by 12 years of a flow of blood. Not only that, she was out there at tremendous risk. It was illegal in that society for a woman to be in public unaccompanied. It was illegal for a woman to be in public, period, with an issue of blood. And it was even more illegal for a woman to touch a holy man. She has to fight her way through that crowd. So it's not like he's passing by and she goes, boop, like that. She works to get at him. When you begin to exercise your faith, you may find obstacles. There may be risks involved. And she touched his garment and he felt that flow of virtue, of power go out of his body. Now let's go on, because there are other things we could talk about in here, but I want to focus on what was said here. Verse 30, And immediately Jesus, knowing in himself that power had gone at him, turned around the crowd and said, Who touched my clothes? His disciples said to him, You see the multitude thronging you? You say, Who touched me? He looked around to see her who had done this thing. And the woman, fearing and trembling, knowing what had happened in her, came and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. And he said to her, Look at this. Your faith, your faith, Not my power. See, the power was in there. There were many other people touching him. But they didn't touch him in faith. She touched him on purpose. She didn't have a casual encounter with him. She didn't touch him to pat him because she was fond of him. Oh, this is a celebrity going by. See, what's in your heart and what comes out of your mouth determines what you receive. Other people undoubtedly touched him because he was a celebrity. Because the disciples say, don't you recognize there are many people thronging you and touching you? But this person didn't touch him with that motive. This person touched him in faith, believing that in him was the power she needed to be made whole. And when she acted on what she believed by saying it and then acting on what she said, it plugged the toaster into the wall. She connected to what was already there for her. It was already there for everybody else that was touching and that was sick. But only she touched him in faith and made the connection by which she could receive what was there for everybody. It gets more interesting. We've got to move along quickly. Your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your affliction. And while he was still speaking, some came from the ruler of the synagogue's house and said, "Your daughter is dead." Now imagine this man; his child is dying, and he finally gets a hold of the one man who has the power to heal his daughter, and he's coming to his house. And on the way, there's this commotion and Jesus is stopped. We don't know how long this conversation with this woman took place, but there's a conversation with this woman, there's a commotion going on and there's a delay in getting this man to my daughter, to heal her. And as they're just getting ready to start moving toward the house again, this man's hope, is way, his hope is way up here. He recognizes one of his servants and he comes up to him on the side and he says, Master, he must have seen the look on his face. Don't bother the teacher anymore. Your daughter's dead. Can you imagine how those words must have rung in his head? Dead, dead, dead. All the hope that had built up in him just crashed by that one word, dead. That one word, Dead. The servant spoke a word and said, Your daughter's dead. Was she? We're going to see, yes, she was. But let's see what Jesus did. Let's see how Jesus responded to those words. This is Jesus now. This isn't some faith teacher. This is Jesus. Don't trouble the teacher anymore. As soon as... As Jesus heard the word that was spoken, he said, he said to the ruler of the synagogue, do not fear, only believe. And I've shared this before. It doesn't say this, so this is my picture of this. I almost get this picture that he grabs him by the robes to get his attention because his emotions are going to start taking over. And he's saying, don't fear. In other words, Jesus, didn't, the word dead didn't bother him, because he's the resurrection. The word dead didn't bother him, but he knows what it will do to the Father. And he needs the Father to continue to believe, because the Father said... If you'll just come lay your hands on my daughter, she'll live. So Jesus is carrying out the authority of those words, and he can carry it out as long as this father continues to believe. Now, having believed, he gets an evil report. You can't get much more evil than that. And Jesus, uh, this is how faith operates. He has to grab him and says, Don't quit on me now! Don't let fear in. Don't. Because as long as you keep on believing, I can do what you said. I need you. I need you to believe and keep your mouth shut. Now the other thing he does here that's interesting. We may go over for a moment, but I want to finish this. He permitted no one. Remember, there's a crowd following. As long as they're just, she's just sick. Because they all believe that He can heal somebody sick. But the stakes are higher now. She's dead. Jesus doesn't have trouble with this. But He knows what men are like. So He now turns to the whole crowd. And He refuses to let any of them go with Him except three members of his staff. That means nine members were told to stay. I believe with all my heart, he chose the three that he knew could stay in faith with him. Jesus had to have that faith connection that was started when the man said, if you'll come and lay your hands on my daughter, she shall be well, and she will live. He goes there, he came to the house, verse 38, and saw a tumult, those weeping and wailing loudly. And he came in. Look what he says. He said, why are you making this commotion and weep? The child is not dead, but sleeping. Was she dead? Yes! But he's saying, he refuses to say she's dead. He's not denying reality. He's making a declaration of his faith. Jesus is. And he kicked them all out in one of the other accounts. He kicks them all out. Imagine walking into a funeral and kicking all the mourners. Of course, in those days, they were professional mourners. They were paid to do this. I've met some that I think could have been professionals. Oh, Lord. The child's not dead, but sleeping. And they ridiculed him. But when he put them all outside, he threw them all out. He took the father and the mother and child and those who were with him and entered where the child was lying. Took the child by the hand and said, Talakumi, which means, little girl, I say to you, arise. And immediately the girl rose, for she was 12 years of age. I want to end with a story. Good friend of ours, minister had been here before, went home to be with the Lord at the end of last year told me this story. In fact, I think he may have told it here years ago. And I saw him a year or so ago, and I verified this story with him. He had a friend that had been raised uh, in a denomination that did not particularly believe in healing. And he got filled with the Holy Spirit. He was a pastor. got filled with the Holy Spirit, got a hold of the word of faith, and began to to believe that God would heal. And he had a daughter that was married, and Got the wonderful news one day that his daughter was pregnant and about to have a child. And when uh, the day came, the father lived like four or five hours away. Uh, uh, He got a call that the baby had been born, but she said, Dad, there's a problem. He's had a serious birth defect in his brain. I don't remember what the details were, but the doctors don't give him very long to live. The father said, I'll be right there. He rushed over about four hours it took to get there. He walks into the intensive care unit, the natal intensive care unit, he walks up to this child, and it's at night, and all the people, you know, Then he, he goes in by himself, and he just, because he, he can't stay long, and he looks down, he said, God, this is my grandchild, and he said, in the name of Jesus, I declare that this child will live and not die, and he walked out, because he couldn't stay any longer. His daughter didn't believe what he believed, and of course, she's afraid, and she's concerned, and this is her first child, and just weeping, and just, you know, so upset, She said, "Dad," he said, "the child will live and not die," and she doesn't understand that. And he went, had to go back home. And so, there's a long story. But what happened is, is the child, you know, he hung on for a couple of days, and and they told the uh, she would call and say, you know, "Daddy's not doing well." He said, "I said the baby will live and not die," and he got a little better for a while. They gave a little hope, and then then it began to turn worse. And about two weeks later, he gets a call, and she said, "Dad, they just called me in. He's got you know minutes to live." I know, I, I appreciate what you were trying to do, but, you know, it's, it's over with. And, and you know, this is going on for two weeks, and every time you get a call, he'd say, this, the baby will live and not die. And he's getting, he's getting, he's got his own emotions, but he's got to control what he says. The baby will live. He said, I said the baby will live and not die. And everything's going worse. Every time he says it, it gets worse. And this time, he's told it's over. You know, they're just, a, a little while to live, you know. And he said with, uh, the story was, he spoke through clenched teeth. I said, every passion in him, that baby will live and not die. I mean, all the p- emotion of a f- grandfather, you know, uh, with all the thoughts may have going through, but he wouldn't let go of that confession. And the mother said, well, he made it through the night. Um, she walked home What she did is she went home. They said, you need to go home and get a rest. We'll call you if anything quickly changes. She walks home, walks into her kitchen, goes into her bedroom. This is a woman that did not believe in spiritual things. She was saved, but she just believed... She said, there was a man standing in my bedroom and his head was, partly through the ceiling, glowing. He looked down and he says, the baby will live and not die and disappears. That night, the baby survived the night, made it through the next day, began to recover a little bit, began to get a little stronger. And when I first heard this story, probably 15 years ago, he was seven years old. He was a healthy, normal, young man. And what I confirmed last year when I saw this friend of ours, he's still alive and doing well. (laughs) Because that one man believed in his heart and said with his mouth,